Hello, everyone, and welcome to Euronurse. We meet live every Saturday at 9 a.m. Central Daylight Time. My name is Vic Sinise, and I'm the host for today's show. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can learn more about us by visiting our website at euronurse.com. Our first half hour will be devoted to general urology questions, and our second half hour will take a deeper dive into a subject. Today's subject is urinary tract infection and is going to be presented by Lori Atkinson. To submit a question, simply click the Q&A button and type in your question. So feel free to start adding in your questions, and we're going to switch over, and I'm going to give you a little update on Euronurse. Um, so hang on one second as I switch over. So Euronurse has uh, been super impressive for me. We've had people showing up from all over the country, from the East Coast to the West Coast and all the way in between. But this week, we took a new step into international Euronurse as we had somebody from Australia register. And I just found out that if they're watching this live, and if you are, welcome, that you're tuning in, I guess, at midnight. So you're really getting a, a good late night show. Uh, it's great. Our weekly number of registrations have been going up steadily, and that number's even changed already. If you're new to watching Euronurse, um, please check out our website at euronurse.com because every week we do post the newest uh, episode and all the old episodes are there for you to watch. They're hosted on YouTube, so they can be watched through our YouTube channel, or you can go to our website directly and click on the link. And if you go to YouTube, this is what our page looks like. Be sure to uh, subscribe. We've got actually that 19 I looked at this morning is up to 22. So the subscriber base is going up on Euronurse. But hit that subscribe so our numbers go up there too. And it's really great because we can see that a lot of these shows are getting multiple views. So we're catching an audience that we don't always catch live in our um, YouTube channel. And this has been a bigger surprise to me. I came up with an idea to have something afterwards. So when the webinar ends, we open up a Zoom room and everybody can attend and you can turn on your mic and your, your video. Well, Andrea, one of our panelists said, show isn't any good. She says, make it a party. So we turned it to the after party and boy, have you guys started to participate in that. I've seen everybody showing up, or not everybody, I'm, I should say, but a lot of you coming to that after party, and that's growing every week. So I encourage it. I think of it as like when you go to a lecture, and afterwards, you kind of mull around in the hall, and you talk to each other, or you come up to the speaker and ask a question that you were afraid to you know, ask because you thought somebody would think you were a dummy. You know, This is the after party. Come in, just hang around, chat, and feel free to ask any questions because our experts come on to that too. Speaking of our experts, this is our panelists. They've been with me from the start, and uh, Lori's never missed an episode. Andrea's had a couple of conflicts, so she's been off, but she'll be back. Um, but it's really great to see all of them, and we can always use more panelists. So I'm going to take a moment just to kind of tell you, if you're interested in being a panelist, the qualifications we're looking for is experience. Uh, certification, you don't have to be certified. It's a plus. If you're in advanced practice, it's a plus. But the most important thing is that you've got urology experience. What you don't need and what some people might be afraid of is you don't have to present on a topic. Although you've seen us presenting, 
It's not necessary to be a, a, a panelist. We just want you to be there to help answer questions. Um, you don't have to be an RN. This Euro nurse, although it says Euro nurse, is open to everyone. It's uh, And we have a physician, a urologist, who's also been coming in. Actually, I see John Lynn is on the, the list here that he's tuned in. Um, no long-term commitment if you you know want to do one episode or 100. We're good. And you it's nice if you're a SUNA member, but you don't have to be a SUNA member. And it's so simple. Just go to the website and click this register as a panelist button. It'll take you to a quick questionnaire just to give me some information about your experience. I'll contact you personally and we'll get you set up on the other side. Now, today we only have two panelists. Anybody that's willing to uh, step up as a panelist, feel free on the Q&A, say, I want to be a panelist because I can move you in from the attendee room to the panelist room. So if you feel like, hey, I got all those qualifications and today I wanna take my dive into it, hint, hint, John, um, feel free to send me the Q&A and I'll, I'll boost you into that room. And lastly, I'd just like to say a big thank you to everyone because it, it's been you guys that have made this possible. The number of people that show up every week is amazing, and we're going to keep going as long as you keep going. So with that, I would encourage everybody to send in any questions that you might have. And, oh, great. I just uh, got something here that John is willing to come out as a panelist, so we're going to promote him real quick here. So John is getting ready to click in here. See how easy that was, folks? Don't be shy. Um, hey, John, welcome. Hello, everyone. Hello. Great to, ha great to have you join us. Um, as I was just starting to, to say, if you have any questions, feel free to go ahead and put those in. I'm going to go ahead and turn my name tag back on. All right. So today, Lori's going to be presenting on urinary tract infection. We'll get rolling into that if we don't see any questions coming up. But if you guys have any general questions, just want to know more about something, um, this is the time you can go ahead and post. I'm curious if our, our Australian showed up, send something in the q and I'm here. <laughs> but uh, I, I, like I said, I just found out. Uh, what is the workup? Paula Wagner wants to, what's the workup for UTI or I'm not sure what the question is. If you could give me a follow-up on that, I'd be glad to present that. In the meantime, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself so that our group can know who you are? Sure. Uh, my name is John Lynn. I'm a urologist in Gilbert, Arizona. It's a suburb of the Phoenix area, population about 250,000. And I just run a Small general urology practice. Oh, you're you're too modest. I heard you were we were chatting in the after party, and you told me you're the number one vasectomy uh, uh, doctor for the area, right? Yes, I I am the number one vasectomist in Arizona. Uh, last year alone, I performed uh, one thousand two hundred vasectomies. Wow, that's fantastic. And Lori, while we're waiting, why don't you uh, give us a little bit of uh, information again about yourself? Sure. So I'm a nurse certified since 2003 in urology. Um, I've been a nurse for 24 years, all of it urology. Um, and I work at Northwestern in uh, Geneva, Illinois. Very good. And for those that may not know who I am, if it's the first time, 
I'm a urology nurse for over 35 years now, working in private practice in the Chicago Ridge area. Uh, we work at a Christ Hospital in Chicago. It's our main, or that's Oak Lawn, our main hospital. And I've been involved in urodynamics, uh, prostate ultrasound, uh, erectile dysfunction, a lot of areas in urology. I've been past president of this uh, Chicago Metro chapter. Speaking of which, we do have a conference coming up. If you click on the Euronurse, it'll it'll bring you over to the Chicago Metro website to see what our new conference is. So get involved in that if you're in the area. Um, I've also been the national president. And I'm going to share something with you guys here because I just got this. Let's see if it's in there. In the mail. Oh, nice. <laughs> Great. Okay. Very nice. First time I've been recognized by national for anything. So I was impressed. I That's awesome. Member of the year. So, uh, okay. So Paula Wagner did follow up on that. So she was looking for the workup for UTI, which I'm sure you're going to talk about in your, your discussion. So we'll Absolutely. hold on. Absolutely. If there's any questions throughout, please feel free to raise your hand. And then cystoscopic exam, upper tract study, if normal C infectious disease. Um, I guess that'll be a follow-up to what we'll talk about when we get into UTIs. So we have any other questions out there from the panel? If not, I was just going to add that I, among us, I am the least experienced in urology. I've only been in urology, gosh, since after training, I finished training in 2003. So yeah, I'm the least experienced. <laughs> yeah. You're just the youngest. That's what it is. <laughs> no, I don't think so. The one thing we always tell people that get into urology is once you're in this, you'll never leave. That is absolutely true. It's just, uh, you know, that before I, I was in. Yeah, I think a, a big draw is the people in urology. Mm -hmm. It's it just the personality or the intrinsic characteristics of the people in urology. They're just relaxed and fun, easygoing. And heck, working in urology, you have to have a sense of humor. Exactly. Absolutely. When my patients are, are, you know, kind of scared and don't want to talk, I basically, and some of them will ask, how'd you get in urology? I go, where else can we talk the way we do and not get in trouble? <laughs> yeah. Or story. when else can you say, as you're performing a digital rectal examination, <laughs> this is what I tell the patient. This is the worst part of my job other than dealing with insurance companies. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, true, true. Yeah, no, I think it's 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 true. And the other thing is that uh, you know the patients that you tend to see, um, you know, they're they're not dying of cancer. Our cancers tend to respond well to treatment. Um, I'm not sure why it's not switching. Um, so they're they're just a better group of people to have to deal with. I mean, I I, I my cans go out to the people who have to deal with cancer patients on a day-to-day -day basis. I don't know how they do it, but it's, yeah. uh, it's a lot easier in urology because people are, you know, more healthy. They, they recover from it. Some of them become, you know, I have been in this business so long that I, some of my friends are patients, former patients are still patients. I should say, you know, they're, they're always asking how are the grandkids doing more than they're telling me about their history. So it, it's really great to have that relationship. We certainly deal with a lot of lifestyle conditions, overactive bladder, recurrent urinary tract infections, enlarged prostate, erectile dysfunction. So it's not so grim 
as in oncology, for instance. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think, go ahead. It's pretty amazing that people are able to open up and talk about such, you know, personal items, you know, like leaking urine or, or can't get an erection, but they do feel that comfort level with us. Oh, 100%. And within such a short amount of time. Yeah. I can meet somebody and uh, maybe it's, it's, they've seen my videos on YouTube and stuff like that, but, but they feel comfortable instantly and say, and start talking about all sorts of very intimate details about their condition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I do have a question that we talked about in the after party, and I highly recommend everyone joining us on the after party is where you let your hair hang down and just kind of talk about things. No, nothing's recorded and you can just kind of talk about anything. But I think it was last week, somebody asked about how do you learn about your dynamics? And then somebody in this Facebook group that I run, the Thriving Urology Practice Facebook group, somebody asked recently again, how does somebody get trained on your dynamics? So uh, the uh, SUNA group has a usually a formal at our big national meeting, they'll have a training the uh, um, day before they call it the pre-conference and you can learn that way. Um, one of the probably top guys in urodynamics is normally there by a guy named Michael Gray. And he's, if you haven't heard him, he is fantastic. I'm hoping to try to twist his arm when I go to the national meeting this month and see if I can get him to come in and be a panelist and discuss it. Um, I know the, big number of people learn from the companies that make them the two Labry and Prometheus who offer their, you know, there's training courses. But yeah, we learn. have, we have Labry and we recently had somebody come out um, to basically train my nurses on how to do it. Um, I'm, I've done neurodynamics for a long time as well. So I know what I'm doing. So she only came out for one day. Um, but it's basically because I didn't know that particular machine, but there are people willing um, from the companies to get somebody clinical out there to show people how to do it. It's always been one of the things when we've had your dynamics as part of our, our uh, local chapter meetings that people strive to come out and see because it's so hard to find good training. And it's hard to find people that are trained in it. I've had more people call me from different offices and say, Hey, I, you know, my nurse just, my urodynamics nurse just went out on labor or I mean, uh, maternity leave. Would you mind filling in for, um, you know, a month or two? And I have done a few of those, um, gone in, but it's, uh, you know, like I said, I, I don't do it anymore because I don't have the time, but, uh, you know, it's more of those things. It's a good skill to have in demand. All right. I don't see any questions else coming in. I so. have one question I want to bring oh, up. Go ahead. Um, because um, I said I would to my practice admin. Anyway, um, does anybody have a lidocaine shortage right now? And what are they doing about it? We initially had injectable lidocaine issues, but now I think it's okay. Uh, for us, it's not. So we have, I mean, I'm literally giving up stuff to surgery because they've run out. So. Wow. I was just curious to see if anybody else had that problem. Wow. I know we've had to hunt around, but we'll, you know, every week we'll try to put an order in. And what they'll do is I'll say, I'll, I want 10 boxes. I'll cut it to four boxes. 
but we're able to keep enough stock to keep our office going. But it's, it's definitely there. There's no question. Yeah, our back order says it's not until September, you know, that we won't receive anything until September 30th. Now, luckily, I over ordered a couple months ago, so I have a pretty good stock. Mm-hmm. But for our surgery department to run out, you know. Yeah. Well, I think this is going to become a, well, it has already become a toilet paper problem. Yeah, <laughs> yes, right. Exactly. Like years ago. <laughs> it's true. There's a fear yeah. of shortage. Well, there's an initial shortage and then there's a fear of shortage. Now there's talk of shortage and everybody's going to going to overorder. So I think that shortage is going to continue for a while until everyone realizes, okay, you're all going to be good. You don't need to overorder. Right. Yep. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I did receive a notice from Sagent, which makes Glido the yes, oh, yeah, gel that they're thinking there may be shortages for them. Jeez. So, does anybody know that the cause is there only one plant that makes it? Like there was a there was well the big one is Pfizer that makes it, and they're claiming that there's you know of course a lot of the stuff's coming from China, so they they keep shutting down, and then their factories are off. So it's been a supply chain de- demand issue. There's another company that was making it that stopped making it, which is the typical where, why you start seeing these shortages. They so you, like you said, you hear about a company shutting down, so buy up all I can. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it, it's not. It shouldn't be one that I think is not solvable. But I think, as you say, as people start to quit overordering, you know, it's. it's I'm not going to run out. That's the 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 feeling. And, and of course, we're as guilty as anybody else. We're going to make sure we try to keep our stack up because right. how do you function without it? I mean, it's it's almost impossible. Yeah. Let's see. Um, before we forget, let's uh, welcome the folks who are currently watching. April, Charlene, Diane, Emily, Francis, Gwen, Jody, Melanie, Neil, Olive, Paula, Rochelle, Rebecca, Robert, and Susie. Thank you so much for watching. I think this is a great program that Vic has put together. And I think it's going to be a huge success because he has been consistent, consistently showing up and putting out quality content, having great topics. So welcome. And looks like Susie has a question, Vic. Yeah, I just saw that comment. We are giving Rosefin with sterile water instead of lidocaine. Oh, yeah. We typically gave Rosefin with lidocaine as well, but you do have that other option. It stings a little more, but it's yeah. not for sure. That was my always my experience is that uh, you know the patient kind of walks out with a little bit of a sore rump from getting yeah. it. With, uh, but you know, again, anything you can do to try to keep you know stretching your supply, I think, makes a lot of sense. So, we also do Botox in the office, and we generally put like thirty cc's of lidocaine in the bladder. And I'm curious to see if that's really even necessary to do that prior. Um. Done. I've had cases where we've done it with and without. Certainly, with is more comfortable. I don't know. If it takes thirty cc's. Um, does take dwell time. Kind of when I was talking about yeah. lidocaine solution versus the gel, and the solution showed that it worked better when it was given over time or allowed to set for time. Right. So we usually do it. You know, leave it in there for twenty minutes before proceeding. So maybe consider downing it to ten but, cc's yeah, or something like that. That might make a, a difference. I, who knows? It's yeah. worth trying, right? Right. Or, or consider not using any lidocaine because I, I, so much of what we do is status quo bias. Meaning, for instance, 
using viscous lidocaine for flexible cystoscopies. You talked about this a few weeks ago. I have not used viscous lidocaine for flexible cystoscopies among males and females for probably close to a decade. Wow. Because if you know what you're doing, if the, the person performing cystoscopy knows what he's doing, most of the patients tolerate the procedure extremely well. The hurdles come in the forms of the, the qualified health professional, shorthand for MD, DO, NP, NPA. So QHPs, qualified health professional, is the Medicare billing term. Yep. The comfort of the qualified health professional and how he or she conveys that confidence to the patient. So if you feel comfortable performing the procedure without viscous lidocaine, the patient's going to tolerate it as well as you mentally can tolerate it. The yeah. patients do great as long as you know what you're doing, as long as your technique is good. Yeah. And I agree. I mean, if we don't teach patients self-catheterization with lidocaine. True. That's and true. It's yeah. a flexible tube. Now, when you did rigid cystoscopy, that's a difference. Yeah, yeah that's a different right. story. Yeah. I'm talking about flexible cystoscopy. With, <laughs> you know, I agree with for flexible the, cystoscopy, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, with the latest digital Olympus scope. And then uh, Susie Swain followed up with, we have found Botox works well without lidocaine and patients are doing good. So I think that's a good consideration. You know, some as you said, it's just what we're used to, right? Right. Sometimes you have to change to, to you know, for the better of society, I guess. No, for the better of your practice and for yourself, you, we should all be constantly looking at better ways of doing things. In medicine, the, the pervasive problem is we do it this way because we've always done it this way. And medicine yeah. is so slow to change, and that's one of the problems. Yep, yeah. that's, that's true. So, that's, that's why that's programs like this should help make think help us think more instead or, of just acting. Or, or collectively, you get to see how other practices are doing things because we usually are working in silos. Yes. We don't know what other people are doing. We may not realize there is a better way. And that's why forums like this and forums like Facebook groups are that are sp urology specific are great on learning how to run your practices better and how to perform certain procedures better. Yeah, no, definitely. Good comments from, uh, from Susie Swain. Thanks a lot. Um, anybody else have any questions before we go into our second half? I think we're getting pretty close to that anyway. Questions, uh, comments, suggestions, topics of interest, certainly leave them in the, uh, just hit, hit that Q and a button. Yep. And at the end of the meeting, when it closes, they do get a, a survey that goes out to everyone where you have an opportunity, you know, last minute, Oh, I wish they would have talked about this. And I've been collecting that group of stuff that I've received so far. And thanks for everyone who has contributed it because you're going to start seeing some of those topics, especially the ones that people are saying a lot of, I've had a lot of erectile dysfunction coming through. So I'm planning an erectile dysfunction talk soon. So, you know, we're here to, to serve what you want, not what we want. Yep, hey, your slides want, are good. I want that built-in technical support in my place. <laughs> Did you see that? Like, all right, I'm a panelist. I'm gonna do a lecture, but I am not IT. Your slide. Oh. Okay. All right, I'm ready. 
All right, so what you need to know about urinary tract infections or UTIs. So the definition of the urinary tract, the urinary tract anatomy includes the parts of the body that make the urine and carry it out of your body. This includes the kidneys, ureters, and urethra. And you'll see that on the right. You see the kidneys on top, the urethras, the tubes that go down to the bladder. The urinary tract is slightly different in males and females. For men, these parts include your kidneys and bladders, as well as the ureters and urethra. The ureters are, of course, those tubes that carry your urine from the kidneys to the bladder. The urethra is a single tube that carries urine from the bladder past the urethra, past the prostate, and to the tip of the penis. If unhealthy bacteria build up anywhere in your urinary tract, this can cause an infection. So in women, the parts are similar, but don't include the prostate and, of course, the penis. The urethra on a female is much shorter than a male, approximately 1.5 to 2 inches in women versus 7 to 8 inches in men. UTIs are more common in women than in men due to a short urethra and location near the rectum. Hey, UTIs... Lord, sorry to interrupt. Oh, yeah. Are you showing slides? Yes. Are you not are seeing them? Are you able to see slides, Vic? Yeah, I see the slides there. And I'm monitoring it on a another feed, so I know it's going through. Got it. Very good. Sorry about that. Go ahead. Oh, that's okay. So, and UTIs are more common after menopause. <clears throat> so facts about the urinary tract infections. Urinary tract infections are the most common type of infection in the United States. More common in females and males due to that length of the urethra. So the anus is in close proximity to the urethra and contains E. coli. This is why E. coli is the most common infection in females. So here's the common types of bacteria. So we've got the gram-positive bacteria, which is the enterococcus. Uh, and the urinalysis, urinalysis may be normal, so it's important, even if your urinalysis is normal, to send it out for a culture if the patient has symptoms. So staphylococcus and streptococcus, we see that a lot with normal skin bacteria. So a lot of times we don't treat this, but we do treat it when it's symptomatic. So gram-negative bacteria. So of course, we got the E. coli, which is the most common type of UTI. We've got Citrobacter, Enterobacter, Klebsiella, Proteus. Um, and we'll talk about this in a little bit. We recommend imaging for somebody who has a Proteus infection. Pseudomonas, and I can never pronounce that last one, Serratia, Serratia. But anyway, there's many, many more, many more types of bacteria that I, every day I feel like it, something else comes through. And, um, and I'm always asking my fiance's uh, mom, who's a microbiologist, I'm like, what is this bacteria? Because there's so many out there now. So the symptoms of the urinary tract, of course, urinary frequency, urgency, the painful urination or dysuria, um, the suprapubic tenderness or the bladder pain that patients complain about, confusion and fatigue, especially with the elderly, and we'll talk about that too. Um, blood in the urine. So it could be actually microscopic or it could be gross immaturity or something, you know, the patients can see in the urine. Testic testicle pain may be a sign, you know, of epididymitis or orchitis in a male. So we have to be careful of that. Um, and then flank pain and fever. Now, I want to highlight that flank pain and fever may be a sign of a kidney infection or pyelonephritis and should get immediate attention. Vic, you'll like this little picture here. <laughs> Brings back memories. I still use this book to the day. It's a Sunabook. 
triage for urology. Love it. Give it to all my new staff because it's got really basic information on what you ask um, for particular symptoms or problems. So, so when you triage somebody, you're looking obviously for what are your symptoms, you know, onset, you know, when did it start? How much pain are you having from a scale from one to 10, one being the least, 10 being the worst? Um, does anything make it better or worse? Are you taking Tylenol? Are you doing Azo over the counter? What are you doing to make it better? And is it getting better or not? Um, the current regimen, taking any medication for this issue. Um, we, you know, we get a lot of patients that say, oh yeah, I've got leftover Bactrim. Let's try that. Um, so we want to know that too, because obviously if they're on an antibiotic, you know, and they do a urine culture, it may be a false reading. Um, so you want to get their history. Do they have a history of a UTI? Do they have a history of prostatitis? Do they have a history of stones, recent instrumentation, bladder cancer, prostate cancer, because it could be radiation cystitis if they've had a radiation? Or do they have IC or interstitial cystitis, which we all know is a little chronic inflammation of the bladder, but the urine cultures usually come back negative. So recommendations, um, we recommend that they make an appointment with the doctor or nurse or the um, APP. Uh, they need to check obviously a UA. Um, we also, on, especially in patients with um, UTI, especially males with UTIs and females with recurrent UTIs, we always check a PVR or post-void residual. We want to know if they're emptying their bladder okay, because if they don't empty their bladder okay, that could be a sign why they're getting the infection. So we have them provide a urine sample for evaluation. Of course, if they can't get into our office and they've had recurrent inf um, infections, we'll go ahead and go put an order into the lab. Um, they could do it there. Now, the important part about the lab, now, if it's somebody that we know gets recurrent infections, sometimes we'll give them empiric antibiotics. It's important to make sure that they do not start antibiotics until they submit that specimen so that it's accurate. So for patients um, unable or unwilling to submit a sample, we consult the provider to see if they're willing to prescribe empiric antibiotics. A lot of times we don't give antibiotics until we get that result back because we don't want to keep giving antibiotics to people that don't have infections because if they do get infections, they're going to become resistant to that um, antibiotic. So we complete, we have them complete the ordered labs imaging recommended and follow-up as advised. Um, proceed to the urgent care or PCP if, of course, a lot of our offices don't have openings right away. And it, it is, you know, something that urgent cares and can, PCPs can handle. Um, so it, it depends on the severity of the situation and the staff availability. Of course, we get scared sending them to the urgent care or PCP because unfortunately, a lot of times we see that they only do uh, urinalysis and assume right away that they have an infection without sending it for a culture, what makes, makes it a lot more diff uh, difficult. So advise patients with fever and flank pain to go to the ER. We don't know whether they have a kidney infection versus stones versus, we just wanna be careful with these patients. Oops. Um, so, and like I said before, so, let's see, oops, sorry. I think I skipped a slide. Hold on one second. So our assessment, um, so we, you know, the problem seems to be like, it sounds like it may be a UTI, maybe kidney stones, IC flare, prostatitis, it could be epididymitis, orchitis in males, or anything else. 
So it's important to determine whether the patient needs to be seen by a provider versus the nurse or go to immediate care um, or the ER. So UTIs in females or males with history of UTIs, UTIs in our office can be seen by a nurse. New UTIs um, in patients and males should be seen by the provider um, because we, in males, we, you know, as nurses, we can't do, you know, digital rectal exams. We can't do scrotal exams or anything like to rule out some of that other stuff like the prostatitis, epididymitis, or chitis. So if kidney stones, prostatitis, epididymitis, or architis is expected, the patient should be seen by the provider because, of course, they need that exam. Fever, chills, or flank pain, I keep saying it, should be seen by immediate care or the ER. Um, let's see here. So um, go to... So urine tests prior to the treatment. So... Of course, the urine dipstick is good, but it's not always act accurate, but it is a good in indicator of an active infection, um, maybe a false positive due to other factors such as stents, catheters, stones, bladder cancer treatments, menstruation, medications, and contamination. Always send a microscopic urinalysis and culture if it's abnormal. We always do a microscopic um, in most cases, some cases we don't, such as if we checked a urine for somebody who has a stent, of course, we're not gonna be worried about the micro because it's gonna be abnormal anyway. Um, so cultures, cultures are the only determinant of true urinary tract infections. Although cultures may not show positive with prostatitis or low, count, low counts of bacteria. Um, the, and then just ensure that the patient is providing a proper clean catch specimen. It's very important, especially in women. When they pee into a cup, we need to make sure that it's a midstream because unfortunately we pick up a lot of ba normal bacteria that's found in that area. So patient with urinary catheters. So do not treat if there's asymptomatic. Asymptomatic bacteria typically does not need to be treated unless the patient has an upcoming appointment procedure or surgery. And we do that, we do check um, patients with catheters a couple of weeks prior to our surgeries or procedures. Um, because we want them on the appropriate antibiotic during one of those procedures. Um, do not, of course, collect the patient's um, urine from the drainage bag. We see this a lot from the ER. They take the urine from the bag. That's an absolute no-no. It's not clean. Um, if a urine sample needs to be obtained, the urine catheter should be changed and uh, urine collected after the new tube is inserted, and a lot of people don't do that. I see that a lot where they either take it from the bag or they plug the, the current catheter and then, you know, drain it into a cup. The best way to get a good sample, change that catheter out and take a sample from the new catheter. Foul urine and, or foul urine and, uh, foul, foul smelling urine, I think I meant to put smelling there, and cloudy urine are not to be treated unless combined with other UTI symptoms. We see that, you know, patients are colonized. Their bag looks filthy, their you know, catheter may, it may smell, what have you, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they have an infection. They're colonized, which means it's probably not bacteria that's gonna hurt them. So with prophylactic antibiotics, uh, we usually for recurrent UTIs, if they have greater than three um, per year, maybe prescribe prophylactic antibiotics. And this is you know one pill of a uh, an antibiotic daily. Um, it's usually low dose. Workup for cure, current UTIs may include upper um, urinary tract imaging, such as a CT or a renal ultrasound and cystoscopy to rule out underlying factors. 
Postcoital antibiotics are sometimes prescribed for females who obviously develop frequent UTIs after intercourse. Usually it's just one pill um, at the time of intercourse. So considerations after a culture uh, results are received. So contaminated specimens should be repeated or a straight cap, uh, you know, should be performed if the UTI is suspected and under the discretion of the provider. So if the patient comes in, they're having symptoms, we get the urine culture back that says it's contaminated. We, we will usually give the patient the option to um, repeat the urine and make sure they're doing that clean catch specimen, or we offer a straight cap. Uh, we want to know if they're symptomatic. Avoidance of antibiotics helps decrease incidence of C. diff, resistances to organisms, and decrease risk of antibiotic adverse effects. And I, I can't say that enough throughout this presentation that do not treat patients if they are not symptomatic. The more antibiotics you give these people, the more resistant they're going to be, and they'll probably end up in, you know, with infection disease or IV antibiotics. So we want to make sure, you know, of course, if they're upcoming procedure that requires treatment, um, we in our office do require um, usually anything that has to do with a cystoscopy, prostate removal, kidney removal, that kind of thing. We do require them to have a negative urine culture prior to any kind of procedure. So antibiotic considerations. Uh, so... Empiric antibiotics, only if the culture is in process, because we want to make sure they drop that urine off first. UTI history, and if the patient is symptomatic. If they do have a true UTI history and they get frequent, we will give them uh, empiric antibiotics as well as even before like the weekend. You don't want them to really have to suffer over the weekend. Always go by your provider's recommendations and protocols as they are likely specific to each practice because my practice may be different than yours. Quinolones are no longer preferred, and that's the Cipron Leviquin, and it's because of that potential risk of neuromuscular side effect or that big tendon rupture, which I'm sure everybody has heard. Methenamine is not an antibiotic. People don't get that. When we put patients on methenamine, it's actually an antiseptic to the bladder, so it keeps the bacteria from adhering to the bladder, which allows them hopefully not to get an infection. If a patient is taking, um, and uh, sorry, I missed word, if patients taking methenamine, then discontinue while taking an antibiotic. You need to stop the methenamine and they can resume it after the course of antibiotics. Uh, Macrobid is, is commonly used for UTI, but not recommended in people with um, kidney infections because it's really specific to just the bladder, uh, male infections, or elderly due to poor penetration. If a patient is mildly symptomatic, offer azo, which is over the counter, Turns your urine orange, but pending the urine culture results to avoid overuse of those antibiotics and resistances. Important to check the creatinine. We want to know what kidney function is, especially if they're 90 years old. It may change, you know, their treatment. Some antibiotics may not be safe, and some antibiotics may need to be taken longer based on the result. Um, is the patient pregnant or breastfeeding? Antibiotics that are safe during pregnancy are penicillin, cephalosporins, and macrobid. Um, they do not recommend the macrobid, usually the last month, uh, I think it's the last month of their pregnancy. It could be the first month, so I uh, forgive me. Um, but it's also not supposed to be taken the first month after the baby's born if that mom is, is breastfeeding. 
Um, patients who are taking Coumadin should notify the Coumadin clinic that they are taking an antibiotic because it can mess up their levels. Make sure you're checking the patient's allergies, of course. So symptom management. I'm sure everybody has one of these in front of them right now. Um, very important to increase your fluid intake. Decrease the bladder irritants, the caffeine, spicy foods, acidic, acidic foods, alcohol, and carbonated beverages. Um, we always recommend the azo, urinary pain relief. It turns you, or pyridium, but most insurances now are, are not covering pyridium because we've got the azo over the counter, which is actually the same thing as pyridium. It's just a lower dose. Um, so instead of the 200 milligrams of pyridium that we give, I believe the azo is just 100 or even just below 100 milligrams. Turns the urine orange may stain contacts. A lot of people don't know. So I always tell my patients, if you're wearing contacts, you may want to wear your glasses during that time. So dipsticks, urine dipsticks with patient um, is, or when take, uh, when a patient is taking azo or pyridine with dipsticks, obviously the results, the results are going to be inaccurate. Um, obviously, when you're doing the dipstick, when a patient comes in, they might have a UTI, you can't go by the dipstick. It's just all messed up. It, it, it skews what you're looking for, so you got to send that culture. Um, consult the provider if the patient is pregnant, um, just to be safe, you know, on what we're giving that patient. Ultimately, antibiotics are given with a proven culture. So UTI prevention, we, again, we need to have patients push fluids. The best thing to do is keep drinking lots of water. Um, not every office does this, but, but some uh, providers do still get, recommend the cranberry extract. Um, and then the D-mannose, we make sure that females are wiping front to back to prevent that E. coli infection and antibiotic suppression. So uh, typically used for antibiotic suppression to keep that infection away, we use macrodantin, low-dose cephalosporins, Bactrim, the single strength, and, and sometimes trimethoprim. So post-coital UTI prevention, um, we usually give them the nitroferantoin or the macrodantin, 50 milligrams. It's just one tablet after intercourse. Um, methanamine, of course, we talked about that as well. And for those post-menopausal women, we um, prescribe estrace cream. And it's just applied to the urethra by a fingertip application two to three times a week to kind of bulk things up to try to keep uh, it from being so thin and allowing bacteria to get in the urinary tract. So urine dipstick and microscopic analysis. This is um, a result that I uh, just happened to put on it here. So you can kind of see. So this is the urine dipstick. And the clarity, we um, have the normal range in the middle and the patient results in this particular case. Um, the color, uh, or so the clarity, normal range is clear. Of course, this patient's was cloudy. Um, I highlighted the blood in the urine. They had a large amount of blood in the urine. Um, it, large could mean microscopic or it could mean gross hematuria. The nitrites and the leukocytes, positive. Um, for nitrites and leukocyte were large. So a lot of white, white cells, basically. Red blood cells in the microscopic urinalysis showed too numerous to count, so a lot. White blood cells showed too numerous to count, a lot. Bacteria, moderate, mucus, um, mucus, you know, mucus, the epithelial cells that you're seeing, we don't get so concerned about that because that a lot of times is just contamination. Here's the culture. So the culture shows 
greater than 100,000 colonies of Proteus. I remember in the beginning of the presentation, I talked, I, I said I would talk about Proteus a little bit more. And a lot of people don't know this. So this is what I wanted to point out as opposed to your typical simple UTI. So I also highlighted, if you see the panel here, it looks, so everything's susceptible, meaning that everything will work, except look at nitrofrantoin. Now, when you get that big number where it's greater than, you know, the greater than, a lot of times those are the ones that are resistant. So you want to look at the ones obviously that are susceptible, but you always want to look for the number that's actually the lowest too, because that's going to be your better chance of getting rid of that infection. So with Proteus infection, you always want to do imaging, and that's what I previously said. It doesn't always have to be a CT, but it could be an ultrasound as well. Um, and this patient, because Proteus can actually be from kidney stones. And so here's the example of that same patient, and their CT shows multiple non-obstructing calculi. So it's important for those Proteus infections to make sure that you get some sort of imaging. So this is where I wanted to kind of open it up. So we've got some myths about um, UTIs. And so this is where I kind of want feedback from the audience on why you think this is a myth. And so number one, the urine is cloudy and smells bad. My patient has a UTI. Anybody have any comment? Our audience should should enter your comments in the Q and A box. Just click on the Q and A and enter your comments. I'm not seeing any answers. Okay. Coming up here, well, so we kind of talked about this during the presentation. So obviously, you're not. You don't want to treat cloudy just because the urine is cloudy and smells bad. Um, you you know they oh, if they we, don't have. Oh, go ahead. We did we did get a few here? Okay. Uh, Paula Wagner said they need to drink more fluid. Uh, Neil Smith sent in. Some foods can drastically alter urine odor. So that's not always indicative of UTI. Uh, Kelly Harris said it could be colonization. that could be colonized. Definitely, those are the answers we're looking for. Good job. All right, good, great. So the next is the urine has bacteria present. So when, in, when you get um, a microscopic analysis and there's bacteria present, why is this a myth? Why why would you think that the patient has a UTI? Yeah, it doesn't seem to be. A, That's okay. And the reason is Neil Smith says not always a urine urinary pathogen. Kelly Harris yeah. said it could be contaminated. Absolutely. Paula Wagner, we all have bacteria. Great job. Yep, you guys got the answers. All right, so the next one, my patient's urine sample has greater than five squamous epithelial cells per low power field and the culture is positive. And I can, um, I'm sorry, your pictures are covering my word here. Oh, I can- You can disregard the- Disregard the epithelial count. count and treat the UTI. So if a, a, patient, a patient comes, you know, the culture comes back positive for contaminants, Paul would Wagner you treat it? Says, I would look at the micro UA, microscopic. Kelly Harris says it should be sent for culture to be certain. 
So if it's sent for culture, I guess the question is, you know, you've got the squamous epithelial cells and the, the culture comes back positive, but it's a contaminant. What do you do? So I, th I think the audience needs to understand that urine culture or urine is not collected all the same way. And what Lori is suggesting in this example is the presence of these squamous epithelial cells may indicate that this was not a clean catch urine and it's it's not a an ideal specimen, if you will. Correct. Yeah. And if, especially, catch. like I said before, if the patient has symptoms, you would basically consider doing a straight cath or and, and like Dr. Lim said, um, repeating that sample and making making sure they do a clean catch. And that's something Gwen mentioned early on saying, would you consider obtaining obtaining a catheterized specimen from women? So yes, depending on the situation, you can, and not just women and sometimes kids, pediatrics, for those of you who treat kids, you know, it's notoriously difficult to obtain a clean catch from a child. So sometimes you would obtain a catheterized specimen from not just women, but also from kids. The audience has kind of concurred with that catheterized sample because that may be contamination. And we especially do it, like I said, before surgeries, you know, um, we want to make sure that they don't have any kind of bacteria when you're doing a surgery and making them really sick afterwards. All right. So number Just four, the, oh, we have ahead. a very astute audience, Kelly, <laughs> Paula, Susie. Yeah. Very, very smart people. Absolutely. All right, so the urine has positive leukocyte esterase. My patient should have a urine culture performed, but- That's is, the one you um, just did. Oh, I'm sorry. Number five. Uh, number five. The urine has nitrates present. My patient has a UTI. So how many times do we dip it? And it, you know, that pink pops up right away. Doesn't necessarily say, you know, necessarily mean that the patient has a UTI. Paula Wagner did mention that the APP guidelines should be followed for the collection on PEDS. And also urine nitrate present, no, doesn't mean the patient has a UTI. Anybody have any clues on what could cause the nitrates to be positive on a dip? Stones, Kelly Harris wrote in. Uh, Paul Wagner said meds and foods and Kelly Harris said, or stents. Yeah. A lot of times if you get, especially gross hematuria, it's going to come back that it looks like it's positive when it's not. Good. Uh, all right. So number six is all findings of bacteria in a catheterized sample should be diagnosed as a UTI. So if you get um, bacteria in a catheterized sample, should, should, should you treat it? I'm going to say that's kind of a tricky question. It yeah. is a tricky question. <laughs> because I guess... I, I, I'm thinking already, why are you catheterizing the patient for the urine sample? You don't yeah. typically do that unless you have a high index of suspicion for an existing urinary tract infection. So right. finding a bacteria in a patient who most likely has symptoms which led to your decision to catheterize the patient most likely has a urinary tract infection. So I guess um, the question is, is when you cath somebody and you get that streptococcus or the staphylococcus, do you treat it? 
Ah, uh, got it. I see, yeah. And let's say, so basically, if obviously they're asymptomatic, you wouldn't be doing it probably if they were symptomatic, of course. Um, so yes, it should be treated. So how about my patient has pyuria, which are the white blood cells in the urine, and they must have a UTI. I don't think any urology office would agree with this, but we see it again all the time in immediate care, primary care, it's office, you know, the ER, that they get that white cell count and right away they're on antibiotics. So Paula Wagner had questioned whether that was a pre-op urine that was uh, showing bacteria that might make a difference for treatment. It does make a difference. So we've had patients that actually um, do a, a clean catch specimen, specimen and they have, you know, more than three organisms in their urine. So it's all contaminated. And then we do um, have them come back, especially if they're having surgery, because we still want that proven negative culture and we will cap them. And it definitely, if we do see the bacteria, we will treat it for that, you know, obviously the appropriate antibiotic for the surgery. Getting some really good comments. Uh, Paul also mentioned urine left in the bladder. I guess that's a comment to uh, say that it can lead to UTIs. And Rochelle said, can't peridium also cause positive nitrites? Yes, it can. Absolutely. Good point. All tricking that machine. It's that, I'm going to yeah. send a, a quick poll out to everybody um, because I think one of the things that we keep kind of alluding around is whether we do a microscopy or not. And I'm not sure whether everybody does them in their office or not. So I'm, I'm kind of curious myself to see who does. So I'm just going to send this quiz along as we're going through the questions. Feel free to fill that out. Uh, you go know, ahead, that's a, that's a great question. Yeah. So we actually do, um, there's some physicians that do and some don't. If we suspect a UTI, Sometimes we will just send the culture, especially if they have a stent or because that micro is going to be, it, it's not going to give you any information. Um, but we do have the test where it's, it's a UA, where they do a UA micro and it reflexes to a culture. Mm -hmm. um, so if the UA is normal, it doesn't go to the culture. I'm not a fan of that one. I like them separate just because even though the UA could be normal, you still could pick up bacteria in the urine. My curiosity is, do people have microscopes in their office? Oh, my gosh. In <laughs> Back in the day. That's, that's, that's why I'm looking at the poll. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, let's Kel finish up our questions because we are getting close to our 10 o'clock hour. Yeah. Kelly also said, did it come from a new catheter? I guess the specimen, it, did the specimen come from a new catheter? Yes, Absolutely. And if you perform CIC, then you will have bacteria. That was Paula's comment. That is absolutely, they can colonize just like people with Foley catheters. We can keep talking. I'm going to open it right now for questions and answers because we're running out of time. So anybody who has any questions, please feel free. Uh, okay, let me just run through these here. Early on, uh, Gwen Hooper. Hey, nice to see you, Gwen. Uh, would you consider obtaining a catheterized specimen from women? Consider for somebody who's symptomatic without giving a specimen oh, or you want to, you want to unshare your screen. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. There we go. 
our poll in the, for microscopy just came in and I didn't get to submit my answer. I think Paula has a great comment while we're waiting for that poll result. Paula said, I think the PCP with education from us should treat UTI, otherwise your clinic would be full. That's a actually a very observant comment. There's a shortage of urologists, and even with the available NPs and PAs, there's still a shortage of available NPs and PAs to get everybody in. Just BPH alone, there are 40 million men in the U.S. requiring who, who have BPH, and only 10 million are on medical therapy, and most are being managed by PCPs. So just that one condition alone, most likely that there are not enough urologists urology, in the urology workforce to handle this problem. So having yeah. PCPs manage simple UTIs is probably the right way to utilize our available resources. It's just all about education for sure, you know, because some your or some PCPs do an awesome job. We'll, you know, patient has blood in the urine, they'll be sending them to CT and then they follow up in our office, whereas a lot of them do blood in the urine and they just chuck them right off to the urologist right off the bat. And what yes. is, I, I don't know if you are going to mention this in your uh, presentation, Lori. One of the things that I do tell my patients, and somebody mentioned something about, um, catheterization. One of the things that I tell my pa female patients who are larger and 70% of Americans are obese or overweight, a lot of these larger ladies may have vaginal voiding, meaning when they void, they, they actually trap some of the urine in the vagina. If they are able to face backwards when they void on the toilet, it may remind them to open up the labia and making sure that they are nice and, and clean and dry to decrease that chance of recurrent infections. Good point. Thank you. So I'm going to get to the question uh, Niels put in here that I think is interesting. We didn't talk about. I've heard some urologists that urine collected from a drainage bag can be used for PCR testing. Is this okay? We didn't, really didn't touch on the genetic uh no, there's a lot of those out there right now. So I, you know, I, we particularly, particularly don't, um, I think the only thing that we usually do is some comprehensive urine cultures, um, where we'll send it out and even, so they'll, they'll basically give us sensitivities and what type of bacteria for those urine cultures that come back with where they say less than 10,000 colonies, we'll actually look into that more. So it's a comprehensive, but we don't do a lot of the PCR tests. And I don't know about uh, using a contaminated bag to send Either anything way, yeah. culture. I don't think that makes sense. I know yeah. that if you catheterize a patient with a fresh sterile bag, you can utilize that sample, no problem. Yeah. Kelly Harris put down, what causes the Foley bag and indwelling Foley to turn purple? Pseudomonas. <laughs> That's right off the bat. If they have that purple bag syndrome or whatever you're calling it, yep. um, do you necessarily want to treat it? If the patient's not having any symptoms, again, probably not, but it's the pseudomonas that usually causes that. 
The biggest problem I've noticed with pseudomonas uh, and purple bag syndrome is the stone formation at the tip of the catheter. Oh, Some of those yeah. catheters are like pulling sandpaper through the Ugh, urethra. Yeah, for sure. And that's the big issue. So they require you know, more frequent changes because of obstruction and things like that. It, it's, it's, a, it's a disaster. Yeah, One, it, it looks funky and it may smell. It doesn't mean that you have to act on it. Right. Yeah. asymptomatic, especially. Right. right. Unless they're forming the stones. One treatment, I, I've had some success. This is not any great research project, but having the patient drink lemonade to try to alter the pH of the urine will help decrease some of the uh, uh, stone formation. Do they still recommend like the crystal light? Uh, I crystal light, crystal light. I, I just told them plain old lemonade. I think it's either the combination of more fluid or the lemonade. But it's got to be fresh lemon. But it helped. Yeah. yeah. It's freshly squeezed lemonade. And the thing yeah. that you want is the citrate content in the lemonade. I think encouraging patients to drink lemonade is a good idea. Number one, it flavors the water. And number two, it increases, encourages the increased intake of uh, fluid, which has been shown to decrease the risk of uh, kidney stones. Rachel Smith wrote in, can you address the myth about yeast? What about it? Yeah, I'm not oh, sure I have to go back to that. Hang on one second. I got it in front of me. Let's see. And Kelly so the myth was the presence of yeast or, can or yeast in the urine, especially in patients with indwelling urinary catheters, indicates ca uh, candida, UTI, and needs to be treated. So if there's yeast is the question whether it should be treated or not. So yeast is kind of like the colonized bacteria. You could still find it in the urine um, and most often reflects colonization or asymptomatic infection. So it's kind of like just, you know, the colonization, if they have yeast, you wouldn't, you wouldn't treat it unless they were having symptoms. I agree. Uh, Paula Wagner also mentioned, you can also use antibiotic irrigation. So that was for treating, I think the purple bag syndrome. I, I used seen. to do that too, whether it really like to prevent, like when I had a patient who had a super pubic tube, would get a lot of infections. So we would put, I think it was at the time, I think it was genomycin that we would actually put in the bladder and it actually did keep them from getting infections. So mm -hmm. what we did was we put the genomycin in the bladder and let it sit for 10, 15 minutes. And then it, and it seemed to help. I haven't seen it in a long time. I don't know if it really, really was the reason why he didn't get infections, but it was worth yeah. a try. I, I, I've used it in the past too. I, I think I've used neomycin. Uh, Paul Wagner also stated you can, uh, using a silicone cath can decrease clogging of an indwelling Foley. I agree with that too. If somebody keeps clogging, I'll switch it to a silicone. Well, this has been a great discussion. And I think this would be one of those that would be a, a great discussion to continue in the after party. After party. <laughs> so I'm going to invite everyone to the after party. I will go over that poll. Microscopy in your office. Do you have a microscope? So even the ability to do it. 60% <laughs> said yes. 40% don't. Wow. I'm more surprised about the 40%. Impressive. I can tell you when I started, I don't think we had a Clinitech machine. We just hand dipped for four different things, sugar, pH, and I can't remember. It's funny to see the like the Clinitech. Like people Every, are like, the Clinitech's not working. What do we do? Dip it yeah. and you gotta hold it up to the bottle. <laughs> the old school way. 
And, and put it on a scope and look at it under the scope. Right, and spin it and tap it and all that good stuff, yeah. So, well, any, well thanks everybody for coming. We've had a great time today. Um, just go to euronurse.com and you'll see the big button that says after party and you'll be instantly transported to the after party where all the fun is. Um, hopefully this was a good uh, uh, explanation for all your questions. Laura, you did a great job. That was a great presentation. Really enjoyed Thank it. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. So, let's see everybody in the after party.